Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your host, Andre Kurenkov. In this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Catherine Olsen and Nelson Elhaj. Catherine and Nelson are both members of the technical staff at Anthropic, which is an AI safety and research company that's working to build reliable, interpretable, and steerable AI system. Catherine and Nelson's focus is on interoperability, and we will discuss several of their recent works in this interview. So uh, thank you so much for joining us for this interview, Catherine and Nelson. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here. All right. I'm excited. These are some pretty uh, meaty works of research, so I think uh, it'll be very interesting. But before we get into that, uh, we always start by just wanting to hear out how you first got into AI, both in terms of being interested and working on it. So if you can give us that kind of story for each of you. Yeah, my path starts pretty early. Um, when I was in high school, I read uh, Girdle Escher Bach by Douglas Hofstadter. So you that was a fun person. Say that, yeah. It's a so. fun perspective to encounter as a you know nerdy 16-year-old. Um, and so that sort of shaped my ideas of what I wanted to do in college. So at MIT, I studied computer science and brain and cognitive science. Um, and then I spent a little bit of time in a PhD program in computational neuroscience before realizing academia wasn't a great fit and deep learning was taking off and I already was qualified for those jobs. So I decided the PhD was not uh, worth completing at that point. Um, and then I knew uh, Greg Brockman from MIT. So I reached out. I'm like, hey, I hear you have this new company. Are you hiring? And they were. And so sort of since then, I've been in uh, these sort of AI research labs that are now common in the deep learning era. Ah, so you were at OpenAI and then uh, Anthropic, which sort of in well, some so ways I actually did. I took a longer path, right? So the oh. Anthropic founders um, sort of left OpenAI about a year and a bit ago, but mm. I joined OpenAI and I think that must have been 2016. So that was early, early OpenAI, sort of earlier in the uh, deep learning takeoff. Uh, and so I was there early, but then I also spent some time at Google Brain. And then I spent a little bit of time doing grant making at Open Philanthropy. So making grants to academic researchers and then found my way to Anthropic. So it's been a, a longer path since. Uh, I see. I see. Back at OpenAI, back when it was all about deep RL at scale and things like that. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, was a, it was a good time to be there. It was fun. All right. And uh, Nelson, yeah, how about you? Uh, yeah, I come to AI much more recently. I hadn't worked in the field at all before joining Anthropic about a year ago. Um, I, as it turns out, I did also read Girdle Escherbach in high school, and I feel like I'm one of the few people who actually finished the book. Everyone I talked to is like, I read two thirds of it and then bounced off. But despite finishing it, I feel like it had a much less of a lasting impact on me. Well, I still haven't started it, so yeah, you're ahead of me. Um, but yeah, so uh, my background is software engineering and systems engineering. I worked at a couple of startups, most recently Stripe for a while, um, in software engineering, building infrastructure, building tools for developers. Um, I'd say the last five years or so, I've been sort of following the deep learning field from the outside, just paying attention to the headline results, watching as sort of things seem to be getting weird, getting exciting, the you know, new results coming out basically every year. Um, but I was 
never quite sure if I wanted to jump in or, or what the right space was. Uh, and then a bit over a year ago, uh, actually, I knew Catherine socially. And I also I worked with Daniela, who's the one of the founders and the president of Anthropic. I worked with her at Stripe. So I had some contacts here. They reached out to me. They were trying to hire actually systems engineers to work on, you know, building the systems that that all the everything runs on. Um, and I was interested by the chance to come sort of do the systems engineering that that was my background was my skill set, but in an environment where I would really get to work with the researchers get to engage with the AI side of it. Um, so I came on board and then actually relatively quickly, I sort of ended up moving to the interpretability team uh, for a combination of at the time that I joined, that team was sort of understaffed, uh, especially with engineers. They, they really just needed some engineering help to, to build the basic research tooling, but also because I personally find it so fascinating of, of an area of, of trying to figure out how the hell these things work. Definitely. Yeah. And that's what we'll be discussing is your work on, on these things. Uh, but before that, also, can you just give a quick kind of overview of Anthropic as a research lab and maybe the interpretability team within it as well? Yeah, sure. So uh, Anthropic was started, as we said, a little bit over a year ago. Um, and the group that started it uh, had largely all worked together on the OpenAI safety team. So in that sort of founding DNA is an orientation towards uh, safety. And I think that's a particular slice of what you could call safety, uh, which is, as the, the mission statement says, the sort of controllable, steerable, supervisable dimension. Um, I think there's a uh, concern that if we don't do what you could call alignment research, then it will be challenging to figure out if the system is doing what we think it's doing or could it be deceiving its operators or other, uh, you know, superv supervisory challenges that are uh, currently in their infancy as far as challenges go. But if the systems become as smart as a human in some meaningful sense, then supervising them is going to be a much greater challenge. So that was sort of the core orienting uh, direction. And so there's a number of different teams at Anthropic, all of which branch somewhere out of that sort of um, directional uh, directional focus. So, of course, we have the um, everything that it takes to train large language models, which is currently the... Uh, domain that we're working in or the type of tool that we're working with and studying. So that, of course, requires a lot of, um, you know, backend engineering, GPU optimizing, pipelining, all of the efficiency that goes behind uh, getting models at scale to run and run well. Um, and then there are various teams, including the interpretability team, working on top of those models to, as I said, uh, investigate different strategies for uh, uh, on the alignment team, that would be things like uh, training them to be uh, helpful, honest, and harmless. That's a current set of, of focus directions of how we'd like sort of interactive models to be. And then interpretability is another such group where we are trying to open the black box of the model and understand from the ground up what has it learned. Because, of course, the matrix multiplies are hard-coded as to, you know, which matrices of what size, but of course their entries, their values are learned. And they have learned to do interesting behaviors using strategies that the creators didn't program in. And so it's our job to reverse engineer 
those strategies that the system has learned. Makes sense. Yeah. And uh, on that point, uh, you have kind of an overall direction, um, at least that we'll be discussing out, which has to do with this notion of mechanistic interoperability. Uh, so can you describe sort of what that is conceptually? Yeah. So mechanistic interpretability, I think, is a program really pioneered by Chris Ola and his collaborators. Chris leads our team, um, although other people have have taken up the baton to various degrees. And it's really this idea of trying to look at neural networks at the sort of micro scale level and really reverse engineer what individual weights or individual values in the network mean kind of from the smallest level of, of, you know, down to sort of, you know, individual like this floating point value at this place or this set of weights connecting this weight and try to back out sort of human understandable algorithms and interpretations from those components and then sort of ladder up from that, that micro level to really try to I think ideally produce a sort of comprehensive description of, of exactly how a network works. And so sort of, I think, I think of it at some level, it's a, it's a sort of bottom up versus top down approach. I think a lot of interpretability work starts from a very top down observational. Can we find something that correlates with some property that we know of the input? Can we find, can we look at distributional properties? Uh, and there's a lot of interesting stuff there, but it's also infamously sort of hard to interpret. If you, if you find something that looks like a strong correlation, is that important? Is the model using that to produce its answer? Or is that just sort of coincidental? It's an artifact of whatever is really going on, what, whatever really going on kind of even means. And mechanistic interpretability says, let's really try to start at at the, the lowest level and try to understand what the individual components are doing and what algorithms are actually encoded. We like to, to treat it, to uh, analogize it to reverse engineering a software program of, of you know, there, there are people who are very good at this that, you know, they can take a, a piece of software that they don't have the source to, they don't have any information about, they just have the compiled binary and sort of work backwards and figure out like what, what was the source code for this? What, what algorithms were what was going on here? What were the creator's intention? Um, in neural networks, we don't really have this sort of notion of a creator's intention, but we know they're optimizing for some goal that we want to produce text, to classify images. And similarly, can we start with this sort of opaque blob and ladder up to higher level abstractions and, and learn what they're doing? And I think it's a, a reasonable response to this program to sort of ask, like, if there's any reason at all to believe that that should be possible, right? Like maybe these things sort of fundamentally alien, like not doing anything that sort of we would recognize as making sense. And I think there's a couple of possible responses to that. But in my opinion, the strongest one is that Chris and his team did it. It worked for, for certain vision models. They got, they, they sort of, they, they've done this work. They can, they've figured out for large classes of the models, like what each neuron is doing. You know, they can point at this one and tell you this one is the dog head detector. And it's a dog, it detects dog heads because it looks for noses and floppy ears in the right orientations and like trace this knowledge down to the individual weights. So, we don't know whether it's always possible or when it's possible, but there's some sort of very exciting existence proofs that for some networks, this approach really does work. And our team is sort of trying to take that same approach and apply it to language models and large language models, which are, 
really where a lot of the excitement in the field in general is right now. And I think one thing, one thing I want to say about this approach, you know, the word interpretability covers a lot of very different lines of research. And so we try to say mechanistic interpretability to specifically place ourselves within this direction where the people doing the interpreting are us, the reverse engineers, not an end user of some system. And there's a rich and, and varied uh, existing research tradition of folks who are trying to make existing systems interpretable by lay people, by users, and that's a very fundamentally different goal. And so I want to just emphasize like interpretability is a very big umbrella with a lot of different directions. And so we're coming in this uh, specific corner of it where the interpreters are sort of us, the reverse engineers, rather than end users or the public or some other end goal. Definitely. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting distinction where often in interpretability, you want to add the interpretability at the inference time of like, here's an output. This is why I made the output here. It's more like, you know, at construction time or training time or you know, after training, you want to sort of make this higher level explanation model of like all the logic in the neural net, which is uh, definitely a different goal and very interesting. Well, I was just going to say, you, you pointed out rightly that much other interpretability work will focus on how did the neural net make this decision? And I think our questions would be maybe a level more abstract, which is how does it perform this type of behaviors? What's the circuit underlying this general class of capabilities that it demonstrates. Yeah. And I think the hope is that, is that, you know, if our program sort of succeeds in the best possible version, you could use it to generate, you know, those much more specific answers of if we know how it works in general, we can also answer how it worked in some particular case, but it's, it's a sort of this much more ambitious and general and, and speculative. Like I, we, we, we genuinely don't know if it'll work, but we're, we're hopeful that it will. And we think there's good reason to believe that it will. Mm -hmm. um, more general, ambitious, and Jetta in that way. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see if you can, if you have this higher level model, it's almost like debugging programs at that point, which is uh, impossible <laughs> as of right now. So, uh, yeah, you have this whole program on mechanistic interoperability, and we can go ahead and dive into these uh, papers we've got uh, so far you know, on your progress uh, on tackling uh, language models, which is obviously um, all the rage. And now we have these gigantic models, bigger than ever, so very hard to understand. And so um, your first uh, work we can dive into here is a mathematical framework for transformer uh, circuits. Uh, can you just give a high-level idea of what transformer circuits are and what is uh, kind of the goal of this project? Yeah, so uh, the, the word circuits comes from, from the earlier work in this mechanistic interpretability space and is sort of this idea of some set of weights or, or activation functions in a network that are tightly connected and that, that interact in some tight way and some coherent way to, to perform some identifiable computation. Um, in vision models, I think one of the, the best studied example was these curve detectors. They, they 
identified certain neurons that exist to detect the presence of curves, and those work by chaining over a couple of couple of layers of the model, building up intermediate features. And we'd refer to those connected neurons along with the activation functions and the activations that throw through them as a circuit of a sort of small portion of the network that, that is tightly coupled and behaves in some coherent way. And I think really this first paper, there was a bunch of, of concrete results, although I think most of them are, are sort of relatively small or incremental. But the main goal was to just articulate sort of some of the ways that we think about circuits in transformers, some of the, the mathematical results and also just intuition for how different parts of the model connect to each other, the space of algorithms and connection that are that are easy or natural for these architectures to perform. Some uh, these these large models are very typically written from a sort of implementation perspective. People, people talk about them or design them from the way that you write code to execute them efficiently across large numbers of GPUs. Um, and so another piece of us is, okay, can we, it turns out for a lot of pieces of them, there are mathematically equivalent formulations of what's going on that don't lend themselves to efficient code as naturally, but that are mathematically a lot cleaner or a lot simpler or a lot more intuitive to reason about. And so some of it is just taking these things that are typically written from from this one perspective and bringing a couple of different perspectives that are mathematically equivalent, less apt for implementation, but hopefully more fruitful for analysis or reasoning about the models. And if I can give sort of one uh, tangible example that's a common thread in the Frameworks paper is the idea of the OV circuit and the QK circuit. So if you read uh, uh, any tutorial about how transformers work, well, often they'll explain like an encoder decoder transformer as in the original paper, but we're doing sort of GBT style transformers, which is only sort of half of that picture and somewhat simpler to explain um, so the way that the attention operation will often be explained is that first you compute where the attention flows by computing the uh, key and the queries. So the, that's sort of Q and K. And then that uh, sort of weighted sum uh, gets applied to the values, which then are transformed through an output matrix and then written back onto the residual stream. So that's sort of Q, K, V, and O piece are computed for efficiency reasons on the GPU uh, somewhat separately. But if we look mathematically, in fact, the Q, K matrices could be viewed as doing one coherent operation, which would be represented by an inefficiently large matrix if you were to combine them. But mathematically speaking, if you're going to compute the eigenvalues or study other properties of that overall matrix, it's reasonable to view that as one uh, joint operation. And similarly, the value and output could be seen as a single OV matrix if they were to be uh, multiplied. And of course, that multiplication would expand it to a point where you wouldn't want to represent that on the computer. But again, for things like computing, eigenvalues, and other mathematical tools, it's useful to think about the OV matrix together. And then if we're looking at entire circuits, in the frameworks paper, we focus primarily on attention-only transformers, where we've dropped the MLP layers for simplicity, uh, for mathematical simplicity. And then for a given uh, OV or sort of QK calculation, you can do this path expansion where you trace 
all the paths, either directly through the residual stream to this layer or through just one previous layer or through combinatorially two previous layers. You can expand the path of truly every uh, every contribution to that term. And so again, this sort of path expansion frame is a mathematically inspired frame. And of course, for a 40 layer transformer, this would be uh, challenging, but we study, you know, two layer, six layer transformers. And in these cases, we can start to get a handle on um, how do these different paths through the residual stream, through some number of layers contribute to the overall score. So that's a type of um, type of approach that this framework allows us to tackle. Yeah, yeah. Reading it, it's quite interesting in that it does seem to uh, focus uh, quite a bit on sort of a question of how do you even try to do this, right? So you have this notion of toy transformers, which have these simplified uh, transformer models. And in this work, you focus on uh, just two layers or less to really be able to kind of distill these uh, concrete conclusions and patterns that hopefully then you can, uh, you know, apply or find in these gigantic transformers. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a very kind of detailed uh, paper that we'll link to this. Uh, it's, it's, there's a lot in there, so we can't cover all of it. So do check it out uh, if you find it interesting. But um, yeah, let's just go over some of it. So before we get to results, maybe you can explain a little bit more on um, how you went about trying to make some conclusions. So you have these search transformers, you had these expanded out equations, but beyond that, what does the process to try and understand anything? Yeah, I think, I think one of the big ideas in, in this paper, which I think we as a team hit at after sort of trying a bunch of different approaches was to sort of start from the smallest possible case of, a, of something that still looks like a transformer and then kind of incrementally layer pieces back in and, and as best we can sort of reason about each of them kind of independently. And so transformers, as, as many audience members likely know, sort of consist of this stack of, of architecturally identical blocks of of kind of neural network, these alternating attention and fully connected multi-layer or, or MLP blocks. And large models like GPT-3, perhaps probably the most famous transformer, has 96 of these layers, each with their own set of weights and computation. So for this paper, we sort of started with toy versions of these. So the same architecture, but stripped down to very small, very minimal. And you can, in fact, start with sort of what we call a zero layer transformer, which is doesn't have any of these layers, which only leaves you with these embedding and unembedding matrices that kind of map between tokens and the internal representation and then map out. And if you think about those, you look at those, it sort of turns out that, that the only thing that, that a zero layer transformer can do is learn bigram statistics is for each given token, like what's what over the entire training distribution is the most likely second token. Um, and so that's like may or may not be that interesting, but it sort of gives you a foundation to, to then reason about and start adding layers on top of that. Then the next thing that we do in this paper is we are considering attention-only models. Um, attention-only models are 
mostly only exist like in the literature as objects of study. They're not very practically useful, but they they contain sort of some of the core complexity, the core value of a transformer while being a lot easier to reason about in various ways. And so this is sort of explicitly uh, uh, in some ways unrealistic simplification, but it makes the analysis easier. And again, the hope is that you can ladder up from there. So then after a zero layer transformer, the next most natural thing is a one layer attention only transformer where we just have the embedding, we have one attention layer, and then we have the unembedding. And we can look at that. We can apply some of the mathematical tricks that we talked about earlier. And the, the details are slightly nuanced. I'll probably refer people to the paper. But we can basically, there's sort of one like kind of computation that is sort of the only thing that makes any sense for the model to do here that we can characterize, that we can understand mathematically and sort of uh, back that up empirically by identifying what's actually going on. And then... So we sort of more or less fully understand these one layer models. And so then the next step is we go to two attention layers, still no MLPs. And at that point, um, the structure really starts to get a lot richer because we have the opportunity for these layers to interact. The first layer can produce sort of intermediate computations that the second layer can then consume in some way. And but again, using our mathematical tools, we're sort of able to decompose this into a, a, a finite set of different kinds of computation. We talk about query query key or value composition, depending on where the intermediate value from the first layer feeds into the second layer. And again, we're able to mostly back out what's going on. And then also in two layer models, um, we sort of discover that actually in, in, in theory, there's a lot of options that are available to them. In practice, they look like one layer models with one particular added type of attention head that we refer to as induction heads. Uh, and those, those end up being so rich and fascinating that we wrote an entire separate paper about them. So I'll pause there and I'm sure we'll dive into those briefly in a little bit. Well, I think before we move on, I just want to highlight that I think the notion of query composition, key composition, and value composition is one of the coolest abstractions that we explore in this paper. And just to give a little more detail on that, if uh, a layer two attention head is somehow using the result that a layer one head has written to the residual stream, of course, there's three different matrices that could be reading from that subspace of the residual stream that the earlier head wrote to. And so it's an empirical question. If the second head is building on the first, how is it building on the first? Which matrix? Is it the query matrix, the key matrix, or the value matrix that is pulling from an overlapping subspace in a linear algebra sense? And that's an empirical question. And so I think having that uh, framework in mind allows you to ask crisper questions about how exactly combinations of attention heads in different layers are handing off information to one another. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's very interesting reading it and going away with these ways to think about transformers that are kind of, let's say, insightful or not necessarily obvious. The notion of residual streams which is sort of the path information takes is quite interesting. Uh, but yes, let's uh, kind of keep going. And as you mentioned, possibly the main conclusion aside from these ways of thinking in this work were induction heads, which is the whole focus of the second work we're going to discuss, uh, which is in context learning and induction heads. So yeah, let's uh, just... Uh, 
start by talking about what are induction heads? What, what was this whole discovery? Yeah, for sure. So compared to the previous paper, this work is much more empirical. Um, and it builds off those sort of findings from the or the framework from the earlier paper, but goes uh, deeply into this empirical finding. OK, so uh, I'll start by explaining what an induction head is. And I'll start that by explaining the induction pattern. And then I'll explain how a pair of heads work together to implement this pattern. So the pattern that is implemented is for a given token that is the present token that attention is uh, flowing from. The way that it anticipates the next token is it looks for earlier times that this token appeared and what token happened next last time. So another way to say this is last time this happened, what happened next? Uh, so that's sort of a strict induction head that's looking for an exact match with the present token and then emitting the literal following token that followed last time. It'll predict follows again this time. So that's kind of a strict literal induction heads. Uh, and, and they can often do sort of softer induction behaviors as well. For example, last time in the current context, there was a token like this one. It emitted a token. So let's emit a token like that one. So these softenings of the semantics uh, also seem to show up as well. And, um, just, to and, give, uh, and just to give a quick example uh, from the previous paper, you have uh, some you know, very concrete examples where you did find this. And one of them is, let's say from Harry Potter, there were some sentences like neighbors would say if the Potters arrived, and then the example of the induction head is it looks at this pot token, P-O-T, and then this induction heads end up sort of going back and finding a previous instance of potters and copying the, the uh, completion of potters. So from P-O-T to terse, it's kind of like copy pasting from the past to uh, make things easy. So that's just one example that is very intuitive to me. That's yeah. right. And I think importantly, they're doing it in the present context. And I mean context in the same sense as if you say context stuffing or prompt engineering, it's the current prompt or context that's being searched over rather than the training data. And this is what distinguishes it from something like a skip trigram implementation where uh, empirically in this second paper, the induction heads paper, we gave the model truly random, truly arbitrary tokens with no semantic coherence and no statistical coherence with respect to the training data. And it performed the same algorithmic operation of last time in this random token context, I saw this token, what came next? And it performs that operation perfectly well. So it allows it to generalize beyond the training statistics. And that's clearly very interesting in the sense of this is a very intuitive, high level kind of as mechanistic interpretation of go back, find this token, get the next one, which is not something we've, we've really seen or I haven't seen. So then to uh, mention the other part here, the paper is in context learning and induction heads. So we know what induction heads are. Uh, what is in context learning and why, why is the focus here on that? Yeah, in, in context learning is a little bit of a, of a confused term or, or maybe confused is unfair, but it, it means a lot of different things in a lot of contexts. But at, at a high level, it's this notion that 
some models, especially these large language models, starting with GPT-2 and GPT-3, are very good at incorporating information that you give them in the context or in the prompt to to kind of vary their text generation or to, to react to their text generation. You can give them examples of what you want them to do, and then they kind of get better at doing that thing. They they sort of learn from the prefix in in a very sophisticated and nuanced way of as you give them you give them text to complete, they 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 sort of they're very reactive to it. They if if you um, if you give them a prompt that is, uh, you know, serious Q and a with the scientist, they start generating text that is, you know, in the serious scientist voice. If you give them a prompt that is a, a bullet point list of grocery items, they're sort of, ah, like, yes, I'm in, I'm in grocery list mode. And they, they, they sort of, they, they react very in a, in a very nuanced way or in a very reactive way to the earlier context of the prompt. Yeah. And so, just to, uh, at a high level, it's kind of related to prompt engineering famously. And if I understand correctly, in context, the, the term itself basically means that it is in the context of a transformer. So it's in the kind of input space, largely speaking. So part of the input says do this. And then because it's in the input somewhere, the behavior such that it does that, even if it wasn't necessarily trained to do that. So it's learning to do the task by having uh, a statement or an example or something that kind of tells it, here's a task. And that's the learning component there, right? Is that a fair kind of characterization? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. Um, and so, yeah, in general, in-context learning is this ability to, to make use of information in its input to refine, improve the output later and later as it, as it continues outputting text. Mm -hmm. For the purposes of this this paper, we um, we chose to we, we came up with a definition of of what we are calling an intact context learning score, which doesn't necessarily capture all of the nuance of this term, but that we think gets at a lot of it and is is very concrete and easy to measure. Which is we simply look at. If you run a transformer on a sequence of text, we look at how much better it gets at predicting the next token as you get further along into the text. So the basic way that transformers are trained is that at every position, they look at all of the preceding text and then they try to predict the next token. And so you can measure the accuracy of that prediction in a number of ways. The typical thing is the, the cross entropy loss, which you typically just refer to as the loss score. And so we can look at the per token loss averaged over a lot of examples of how good is the model at predicting the 50th token starting from this beginning and how good is it at predicting the 500th token and the loss gives you a value that represents at each of those how good the prediction is. You subtract those two losses, and we, we define that as the in-context learning score. The numbers 50 and 500, we chose pretty much arbitrarily, but we show that you get qualitatively similar results for any reasonable choice. You could do 10 in 1,000, you could do 10 in 100, and the exact numbers would change, but the qualitative results are pretty robust. So you just have to make some choice, and, and those are the ones we chose for this paper. Right. And so to jump ahead beyond sort of the setup 
to uh, the takeaway. I'm going to spoil it a little bit. So if you read it in the beginning, um, kind of introduction, you state that the hypothesis you're exploring is that induction heads might constitute the mechanism for the majority of this in-context learning, that this might be the explanation of why prompt engineering works, which is super exciting if that's the explanation because prompt engineering is kind of amazing and mind-blowing. And if you understand what's happening, then, um, you know, it would be very useful for kind of knowing how to use these things. So um, that's maybe the key takeaway. And could you describe uh, why or how you found that to possibly be true? Well, I think the the discovery story is at least a little bit illustrative of why this hypothesis came to be, where Chris was studying some small transformer models and happened to look at a snapshot earlier in training than he was used to, and he couldn't find the induction heads. And he was mystified until he realized that he had loaded the wrong snapshot. And a snapshot later in training naturally did have induction heads, so he had found two points, one before their development and one after. And between those two points was a visible bump in the loss curve, a visible deviation from the trajectory where all of a sudden the model improved at the overall loss visibly. That was also the point at which the in-context learning score got dramatically better. Uh, and as we explore in this paper, numerous other sort of visible high-level changes happen at that particular phase of development, uh, which we sort of originally observed as the place where induction heads develop um, and that sort of led us to think that this great improvement in induction or in uh, in context learning score could be attributable to those heads specifically. And so in this work, we explore, um, you know, if you look at the table of contents of this paper, we list out sort of argument one through six of these different reasons why you might find the hypothesis plausible. I should emphasize we have not proven the hypothesis in any sense. And in fact, I personally find it quite plausible that induction heads in larger models are just one of a family of other types of uh, composed attention heads with, as I mentioned, Q, K, or V composition uh, that could be responsible for these, uh, you know, the sort of in-context learning behaviors in very large models. But especially in the small models, it's quite clear that induction heads are the main thing uh, going on that's leading to the small models being able to uh, improve over the context. And that's at least uh, correlated evidence that it's plausible that something like that is going on in the large models too. Um, and one of the uh, arguments we, we make, I think, backs up why uh, this could be plausible because if you think of induction as this literal copying, you know, you just saw potters before and now you see potters uh, now, it doesn't make sense that literal copying could explain all of in-context learning. But there is this co-occurrence where we see that the attention heads that do strict induction also seem to do other interesting behaviors uh, that are more general. And so that uh, generality that we observe in the heads that also do the strict copying lends some plausibility to that they could be contributing to more sophisticated in-context behaviors as well. Yeah, it's very interesting reading the paper and going through these six arguments. You have a lot of you know, experimental findings that at least make it seem likely and you have no proof, but it, it does appear very plausible that these uh, induction heads are a big part of what's happening. And maybe that makes sense because you're going back in time and figuring out 
here's what I was told to do, or here's the example, and now I should do that again. So there's a bit of a high level um, reason to think it might be plausible. So that's a pretty good summary, I would say, of, of so far what you've been able to find. Very interesting. And let's wrap up on the research by just saying what's next. Uh, you know, you've you've made some progress, but what are you thinking is, is the next frontier to tackle in this direction? Yeah, I think at a, at a high level, we as we look at our results so far, we've had a lot of success understanding the attention mechanism in Transformers. Uh, there's a lot that remains to be discovered. I, I, I will not claim that we fully understand it or that we fully understand it in large models at all. But we've had a lot of success and that that feels like a very promising avenue. But Attention is only something like one quarter of the parameters or the compute in most large transformers. So something like three quarters of the computation is these fully connected layers. We call them the MLP layers. And those have proven, at least for us in our results, a lot less tractable. We understand them a lot less well. We don't really know what's going on in those. And so at a high level, we are focusing our next thread of research on what is going on in the MLP layers? How can we get traction there? Um, and we probably don't have time to go too much into the details, but we actually have a more recent paper out from June this year with some initial speculative results on actually, we found, we designed a alternate activation function inside MLP layers. Uh, transformers typically use the ReLU or GELU activation function. We invented something we call the softmax linear unit which has essentially identical performance in terms of, of ML performance. You get the same loss curves, you get the same um, capabilities if you use it, but it makes the MLP layers somewhat more interpretable in our experiments. We actually ran some experiments. And so generally speaking, that's a lot of our current thread is can we understand these MLP layers, but also can we find architecture variants or training techniques that achieve the same performance, the, the same capabilities, or at least roughly the same, but that make these layers easier to understand. Um, we have another paper that will be coming out sometime soon where we look at some other toy models that aren't transformers at all, but very toy models in order to try to get at some of the, the root causes of what's going on, why we believe these things are so hard to interpret and some techniques that might help. But so in general, that's the, the current thread of work is trying to dig at these MLP layers and we've found them to be somewhat challenging. And so we're going a little bit back to basics and exploring, can we understand why they're challenging? Can we understand what drives them to look the way they do? Can we understand a little bit the, the space of possible tweaks or variations we might make there to make them more interpretable? Makes sense. And uh, certainly I should take a look. I'm excited. Uh, again, these are quite long uh, papers, not long in the sense of boring and there's too much. It's There's a lot in there in terms of interesting findings and conclusions. And again, we'll be linking to them. They are pretty approachable to read for anybody. There is some math, but you could skip it. There's a lot of sort of empirical results that is very easy to uh, kind of take in. And, and I do think you'll, you'll get a better understanding of Transformers if you take a read. 
I also want to just cut in and encourage people to try to replicate our results. We've had uh, groups at other uh, research labs, both in industry and academia, uh, replicate our findings, especially on induction head, but also some of our other findings. Uh, and I think at least that this kind of work uh, is comparatively approachable. You don't need to tweak hyperparameters. Uh, you don't need to train a giant model. You just need an already trained one that you can analyze and access the weights of. So I would really encourage folks to, if you find this interesting, uh, see if you can replicate some of our work. And I think you'll find that the engineering that that, uh, that, that objective drives you to is going to be somewhat different from other types of ML engineering in an interesting way. Um, another type of uh, investigation that you can do, as well as sort of replicating the induction heads finding, is just qualitatively look at what neurons and attention heads are doing. So we've re released a software library called PySvelte. It does need a little bit of configuration to set up. It's not like perfectly out of the box, but you can create your own little JavaScript interfaces to highlight parts of text by the activation of neurons or otherwise give yourself like a hands-on uh, way of, of approaching uh, sort of the, the naturalism, like the as a naturalist to study what's going on. And so I want to just put in a pitch for uh, writing these simple JavaScript interfaces is much easier than you might think. And the quality of understanding you gain from spending some time with the data uh, is super valuable. And I would love to see more people doing it. Yeah, that's great. So uh, we'll link to that library as well. And um, yeah, it's probably fun to just poke and prod and see what's going on. So, you know, if you're a fan of AI and want to do some, let's say, uh, you know, informal science, uh, this does sound like a great way to do it. Just to, to, to emphasize that a benefit of the fact that a lot of our work has been on these very small models is that uh, even if you do want to, to train these models, uh, models at this scale can easily be trained on a single GPU on relatively small data sets. And so the the this kind of research, at least for the, the results we've had so far, a lot of it really is much more accessible than typical working with language models, but we're pretty optimistic that it, it has at least some bearing on large language models. So if you're, if you're interested in large language models, but you want to approach them from a direction that'll, that'll fit on one GPU or in one notebook, I think there's a lot of really cool research directions here. Mm, yeah. For, for, for us without uh, small supercomputers to run GPT free, uh, this does seem like it'll help. Well, with that, we're going to go in and uh, wrap up. That was uh, really interesting for me reading these uh, papers. So thank you so much, Nelson and Catherine, for making the time. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks for having us. It's really fun to explain this stuff. Test, test, test. <clears throat> Once again, this is a gradient podcast check out our associated magazine over at thegradient.pub and head to the gradient substack to subscribe if you joined the interview we would really appreciate it if you share this podcast with friends and if you could review us on apple that would be awesome we have very uh, little feedback on there so we'd really like to hear from you and by the way we just launched our gradient discord so take a look at that Thank you so much for listening and do be sure to tune in to our future episodes.